This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. God and the Biden administration, a curious coupling. The leftist press is making much of the fact that newly inaugurated President Joseph Biden is a quote-unquote devout Catholic. While the return to order moment cannot pretend to judge the state of his soul, we can judge his actions. Those actions, especially on abortion and related issues, do not paint a pretty picture. Mr. John Horvat examines this contradiction in his essay, Why Do They Invoke the God Whose Law They Ignore? President Biden's inauguration ceremony was full of symbolism and imponderables. Tension in the air dominated the empty mall as thousands of National Guard troops surrounded the Capitol. The scene was marked not with somber solemnity, but nervous inquietude in the face of a divided nation. One curious observation about the ceremony was its profoundly religious overtones. From beginning to end, the speakers invoked God. They invoked the Christian God and none other. For a secular government that does not officially recognize God, the presidential inauguration called upon God unapologetically. For those who rabidly proclaim the separation of church and state, the religious note firmly fused to this civil ceremony must have seemed unconstitutional. The new president surrounded himself in Christian imagery as he began his term. He appeared at Mass in Washington's St. Matthew's Cathedral. Later, Father Leo J. O'Donovan III, a Jesuit priest and former president of Georgetown University, delivered the inaugural invocation. Reverend Sylvester Beeman, the pastor of Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Wilmington, Delaware, gave a benediction. After the new president's speech, Garth Brooks sang Amazing Grace. During his speech, President Biden made Christian references that were more than just passing comments. He cited St. Augustine with a simplified version of his definition of a people. He quoted scripture and led a small crowd in a moment of silent prayer for America and for those who died of COVID. The new president spoke about his, quote, sacred oath before God, unquote. He swore using an old family Bible. Like all political speeches, the address ended asking that God bless America and the troops. From a historical perspective, the inaugural ceremony was not uncommon. American inaugurations have always been profoundly religious and Christian. Traditionally, Politicians have turned a blind eye to what some might consider constitutional issues and satisfied the desires of an America that even today remains deeply religious. Nevertheless, this inauguration with so many religious overtones was different because of three contradictions. Perhaps the tension in the air in part reflected those contradictions. In the emptiness of the mall, there was no sensation of blessings celebrated by all. The militarized zone manifested none of the trust that is so fundamental to religion. The first of the contradictions was that the inaugural ceremony participants constantly invoked God, 
Yet everyone knows that this new administration, spurred by its most radical supporters, will solemnly ignore God's law as summarized in the Ten Commandments. It is no secret that the Biden campaign platform was the most anti-Christian program ever proposed in an American general election. President Biden is at odds with divine law in key areas like procured abortion, same-sex quote-unquote marriage, and the LGBTQ plus agenda. Moreover, he has pledged to advance these causes more than any other president. In addition to these fourth, fifth, and sixth commandment issues, the radical left has promised to push the president and the country toward an ever more socialist position, invoking the seventh and tenth commandments. Many Catholics fear government regulations will soon prevent them from practicing the faith, which touches on the first and third commandments. Thus, in the face of an agenda that looms threateningly upon the horizon, there is cynical contradiction in these invocations a second and eighth commandments issues. All should invoke God. Yet can those who invoke God while ignoring his law expect to be heard? Indeed, what can the nation expect with these invocations if it heads further down the path of sin and iniquity? The second contradiction was why those subscribing to a liberal agenda did not use liberal imagery at the inauguration. It would have reflected their views more accurately. Indeed, 2020 was a year filled with such liberal imagery and symbolism. However, there were no BLM symbols or rainbow flags at the Capitol. If the liberal agenda is so attractive, then the inauguration should have been a celebration of every leftist cause and ideal. It should have been a woke repudiation of tradition, imbued as it is with quote-unquote systemic racism. Yet all the symbols and Christian invocations remained in place because they touched the American soul so profoundly. Secular society invokes no benevolent God. Its idols are the cold and frenetically intemperate gods of materialism, individualism, and technology. The deities of political correctness are cruel and unforgiving. The return to tradition only highlights the bankruptcy of liberal ideas. They do not, and cannot, capture the imagination of the American people. Finally, the continued use of the religious invocations only proves that these supplications are effective and true. They reflect centuries of Christian worship in which God aided those who called upon him. Such traditions endure because most Americans have experienced God's bounty and mercy. Thus, the invocations at the inauguration ceremony have their foundation in reality. The secular creed tries to turn them into formulas and conventions that have little meaning. In this reduction to empty words, practiced by both left and right, America has lost its moral compass. This is not a judgment upon the individuals making the invocations, but of the context in which they took place. America is a sinful nation and cannot expect God's mercy without repentance and observance of his law, regardless of who asks for it. 
The inauguration lesson is that those who ignore God's law cannot expect unity, the theme of the presidential address. There will instead be the discord, silence, and tension symbolized by the empty mall guarded by troops. There is an implicit acknowledgement on the left that the use of Christian imagery is attractive and powerful. It reveals the radical left's weakness, since it can never have ideals and imagery that can compare to those informed by the Catholic adoration of Almighty God. It cannot expect to receive his bounty and mercy unless it follows his divine law. The religious inauguration also points to the strength of those who still believe and trust in God. Americans must return to God. If they do, they will find out by direct experience how faithful Jesus is to his promise. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you besides. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. In theory, adding the presidency and control of the Senate to their already existing control of the House should mean that the Democrats are stronger than they have been in decades. However, it does not take much examination to find huge rifts among the Democrats. Mr. James Bascom examines this condition in his essay, Putting the Capital Invasion, Joe Biden, and American Politics in Perspective. Following the Capital Invasion and Joe Biden's inauguration, most American conservatives are feeling disoriented, fearful, and even in despair about America's future. This is not entirely unreasonable. Democrats want to impose California-style election laws on the whole country, admit the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico as states, and outright persecute conservative speech, ensuring a permanent liberal majority. But even at this hour of apparent triumph, the fact remains that the American left is suffering fundamental weaknesses that can and should be exploited by the right. It can be defeated if only the right will unite around a counter-revolutionary banner. The spectacle of thousands of protesters vandalizing the United States Capitol on January 6th shocked a country desensitized to shocking events. The symbol of American government and power was damaged, only this time not by British troops, but by American citizens. Five people, including one member of the Capitol Police, died due to the invasion, and 60 police officers were injured. But the images of Americans invading and damaging the Capitol was doubly shocking because the invaders were from the right. American conservatives have always defended quote-unquote law and order and getting tough on crime. Conservatives are the natural defenders of the traditional social order. Illegal violence contradicts the very purpose of conservatism, which is to preserve order, while the left has always thought to overthrow order. It was far from the first act of violence in America's political divide, of course. Antifa and BLM, with the full support of the liberal media, have been killing, looting, and burning American cities for months. The riots killed at least 29 people, caused over $2 billion in damage, and gravely wounded once great American cities. To paraphrase the 19th century Austrian diplomat, Prince Felix of Schwarzenberg, 
the American left is shocking the world by the depth of its hypocrisy. Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Chris Cuomo, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Don Lemon, and countless other Democrat politicians and reporters are calling the violence at the Capitol an insurrection, a coup, and domestic terrorism. Yet they defended, promoted, and even celebrated Black Lives Matter violence in 2020. When vandals tore down the Christopher Columbus statue in Nancy Pelosi's home city of Baltimore, she shrugged it off. Quote, people will do what they will do, unquote. The physical damage, no doubt, will be quickly repaired. The long-term damage to the country, however, will be severe. Internationally, it diminished America's reputation as a beacon of stability, power, freedom, and the rule of law. Anti-American regimes such as China, Cuba, and Venezuela are already using both the BLM riots and the capital vandalism to attack the United States and justify their own abuses against their peoples. The right is divided, demoralized, and on the defensive. A major division in the Republican Party is possible, handicapping the ability of the right to stand up to the left at this crucial moment. The media and the Democrats, whether justified or not, are doing everything to pin the capital invasion on the broader conservative movement. Big tech companies such as Google, Amazon, Twitter, and Facebook are using quote-unquote violence as a useful pretext for purging anti-leftist content from their platforms. Congressional Democrats, already chomping at the bit to push a far-left agenda, are less likely than ever to compromise. Joe Biden will likely try to govern as the most socialist president in American history. He is certain to undo many good policies of the Trump presidency, from abortion to environmentalism to rebuilding the military. He will damage the country, perhaps irrevocably. Even so, the American left is much weaker than it appears. With nearly every institution controlled by the left, and after four years of nonstop media propaganda, Joe Biden and the Democrats were supposed to win in a landslide. Yet, according to the official vote count, Joe Biden defeated Donald Trump by just over 300,000 votes, or less than 0.5% of his total votes, in the key swing states of Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. If Biden did, in fact, win by voter fraud, as 75% of Republican voters believe, then it was a humiliating defeat to have to resort to cheating to squeak out a victory. If Biden legitimately won without fraud, then he won by the narrowest of margins. Either way, he did not win by a landslide, and he does not have a broad mandate. As soon as he veers too far to the left, he will experience a massive pushback, just like President Obama. At a personal level, Biden is undeniably the weakest, most uninspiring president since Jimmy Carter. At 78, he is also the oldest man to take the presidential oath of office in American history. At numerous public appearances during the campaign trail last year, he showed clear signs of mental decline, often forgetting his lines, and even the state where he was. He inspires few people, 
and is all but certain to serve only one term, as he himself has indicated. As a pro-abortion and pro-LGBT quote-unquote Catholic, Joe Biden will also have to deal with a unified block of faithful Catholic Americans who will fight him tooth and nail over his immoral positions on these issues. It will force him to be on the defensive regarding receiving Holy Communion, as he was on the campaign trail. Faithful Catholics will hammer this issue hard and often. Kamala Harris is even weaker. During the Democratic primary last year, she won exactly zero delegates and consistently polled behind most other candidates. She scares moderates with her radical voting record in the Senate and angers progressives who point to her tenure as California Attorney General. She probably couldn't have won at the top of the ticket and will have a very difficult time if she tries in 2024. She's essentially a younger, scarier Nancy Pelosi, a big turnoff for swing voters. Amid all the controversy over alleged voter fraud and the calls to quote-unquote nullify the presidential election, conservatives have mostly overlooked the astounding rebuke the Democrats suffered in both Congress and in the states. Democrats outspent Republicans by nearly two to one, $6.9 billion versus $3.8 billion. Yet in Congress, the Republicans flipped at least 10 seats with a possible 11th from New York, although that race is still being disputed. Democrats now have a mere 10-seat majority, 221 to 211. Many of those Democrats who lost are blaming the far-left rhetoric about defunding the police. Conservatives must remind Americans relentlessly about these radical proposals being pushed by Democrats. In the states, the Democrat Party also failed spectacularly to flip state legislatures blue. Following the results of the 2020 census, many states will have to redraw their congressional district maps. In states where one political party controls the state house, state senate, and the governorship, a trifecta, they can draw maps that give their party an advantage. This is exactly what Republicans did following the 2010 elections. The backlash that year against President Obama allowed Republicans to take several state legislatures and governorships, which they promptly used to draw more favorable electoral maps in states such as Texas, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Florida. From 2008 to 2016, Democrats went from controlling both legislatures in 27 states to just 13 and suffered a net loss of 816 legislative seats, the most by any party in power since Eisenhower. To avoid a repeat of 2010, in 2017, the Democrats created an organization called the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. Led by former Attorney General Eric Holder, it poured millions of dollars into state races and 13 key swing states, Florida, Georgia, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Minnesota, New Hampshire, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Texas, Virginia, and Wisconsin. All that money was for nothing. The Democrats not only failed to flip a single legislative chamber, but the Republicans actually flipped two, the New Hampshire State House and Senate, 
and even expanded their majority in many others. Republicans now control 59 out of 98 partisan state chambers. Democrats also lost several ballot initiatives inspired by avant-garde progressive ideology. In California, a referendum to repeal Prop 209 and legalize quote-unquote affirmative action, race-based quotas, was rejected 57% to 42%. Another California ballot initiative to repeal Prop 13 restrictions on property tax increases also failed 52% to 48%. In Illinois, 55% of the voters rejected an initiative to replace that state's flat income tax with a progressive one. And in Massachusetts, 55% rejected ranked choice voting, another progressive priority. How can the conservative movement fight back against the leftist onslaught that is sure to come? How can we expect to resist, much less defeat, an emboldened and radicalized left? First, we must put our faith in God, not men. We need a conservative movement that is profoundly Christian and that defends natural law and the Ten Commandments before all else. Our crisis today is, deep down, a religious one. Only a return to God and His order will make a defeat of the left possible. We must defend traditional morality and the traditional family, especially against the culture of death and the LGBT revolution. We must restore the notion of good and evil that has almost disappeared in our relativistic age. This must start in our personal lives. Second, we must recognize that the quote-unquote progressive left is not advocating progress, nor even a revolt, but a revolution. Critical race theory, the Green New Deal, LGBT tyranny, especially transgenderism, unrestricted abortion, modern monetary theory, illegal immigration, and Medicare for all are weapons in the same army that wants to burn what remains of Christian civilization to the ground. Conservative Americans must understand that they are in a titanic struggle for civilization itself. We must study and understand the nature of this revolution its characteristics, tactics, and driving forces. And if the enemy is waging a revolution, the only proper response is a counter-revolution. The book, Revolution and Counter-Revolution, by Plinio Correa de Oliveira, is a very good place to start. Third, we must resolve not only to elect godly statesmen to office, but also to act directly on public opinion through a cultural counter-revolution. Politics, it is often said, is downstream from culture. The left has subverted America, and especially our youth, through culture. Music, fashions, movies, televisions, schools, technology, and many others. Like the early Christians, we must fight a counter-cultural crusade against the perverse society in which we live. We need to act on public opinion, one person, one family, one neighborhood at a time. We need to be more dedicated to our cause than the revolutionaries have been to theirs, to prevail in the battle for public opinion inch by inch.
only culture imbued with Christian principles and defended by men and women of strong religious convictions is capable of resisting and defeating the cultural steamroller of our times. The future belongs to those who fight. Finally, we need to pray to our Lord Jesus Christ through the intercession of his Holy Mother Mary for graces of repentance, wisdom, and fortitude. God sent his mother Mary to the world at Fatima, Portugal in 1917 to warn about the errors of Russia and the future chastisements that would come. If mankind did not convert, she said, many nations would be annihilated. We are now witnessing the final fulfillment of those prophecies. It is not too late for America and the world to turn back to God with a humble and contrite heart. We move now from the big picture to a much smaller detail. However, it is a detail with great significance. In the Oval Office, President Biden replaced the bust of Winston Churchill, a gift of the British government, one of Cesar Chavez. Mr. Horvat examines the significance of this act in his essay, Biden's Socialist Message in the Battle of the Busts. With each passing day, President Joe Biden defines the direction of his new administration. Optimists might hope that the theme of unity in his inauguration would result in some gestures of goodwill toward conservatives. However, the towering stacks of divisive executive orders dash those hopes and prepare the stage for conflict. One minor gesture speaks volumes about the president's radical agenda. Missing from the Oval Office is the bust of Sir Winston Churchill. In its place is a bronze bust of California Union activist Cesar Chavez. The departure of the Churchill bust is both ironic and deliberate. It is ironic because the figure of Churchill could have proved an inspiration for the times. Quote, We're in a national emergency. We need to act like we're in a national emergency, President Biden recently commented. What better model for handling an emergency than Sir Winston? He took England through the war by uniting all factions and focusing on the crisis at hand. His leadership, tenacity, and wit would be very welcome in a divided America. Although controversial, none can deny that Churchill had his shining moments. The departure of his bust sends a signal not to expect any flourish of Churchillian grandeur or magnificence of expression. There is no room for statesmen of stature anymore. Now is a time of little men, petty politics, and narrow horizons. The Cesar Chavez bust represents these new times. The placement was very deliberate. The Biden transition team went to the visitor center of the Cesar E. Chavez National Monument in Keene, California, to ask for the sculptured bust displayed there. The team knew what it represented. It sends a message of what can be expected from the Biden administration. For those too young to know, Cesar Chavez was a union organizer for the United Farm Workers in the 60s and 70s. Like Barack Obama, he was a follower of Saul Alinsky. He trained with the Community Services Organization in California, a creation of Alinsky's Industrial Areas Foundation. Thus, he served the revolution all his life. In 1965, he led a boycott of farm produce and table grapes that established his fame as a labor organizer. 
He also became the darling of the Catholic left, who supported his efforts to organize farm workers and his fight against the rival Teamsters Union. Now a footnote in American history. Chavez's name was synonymous with leftist causes in the turbulent 60s and 70s. By choosing Cesar Chavez as his Oval Office bust, the new president establishes a clear link with the left of the distant past. He manifests his desire to reinforce his stature among unionists and the Catholic left. He follows in former President Obama's footsteps. The move unites around an activist who was divisive and remains so to many who remember his violent strikes. Chavez was not reassuring, since many feared his communist sympathies and ties. Thus, the choice of Chavez's bust reflects well the direction of the new administration. His cabinet and other officers' choices are figures with connections to a leftist past, many being pro-abortion Catholics. Yet others are on the cutting edge of liberal and LGBTQ plus causes. Each is like Chavez, a faithful soldier marching to the same beat of the left. The vulgar celebrations of the left announce an ominous future that will purge the nation of any who hold values different from its own. Churchill's bust must go, along with any who might remind others of past greatness. Under Cesar's shadow, all must now reflect socialist utopian dreams of an elusive world of total equality and radical unrestraint. This concludes God and the Biden administration, a curious coupling. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. In that way, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the ideological message behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2021 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.